Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. I see myself as a bridge builder. I mean, that's something that I actively try to do, but not yeah. in a way that then compromises my core beliefs. I mean, I think I believe strongly in taking up your cross and counting the cost of that. Yeah. You know, what is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I will try to be faithful to what I believe, but I'm also willing to engage in dialogue and want to engage in dialogue with people that are, have very different points of view than me. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, which is a Facebook Live uh, event, I guess you could say, um, also a podcast, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, where podcasts are available. And um, today I'm talking with Adam Russell Taylor, who is an author and also the new president um, of Sojourners, and I've got a copy of his book here, which I picked up at the Wild Goose Festival this summer. So, Adam, um, I'm going to talk about you and introduce you properly. But first of all, just welcome to my my podcast, my conversation, and um, tell tell me first of all, how long have you been president of Sojourners? When when did you take over? Yeah, so thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been. It'll be a year in November. Okay. So I'm not sure when the honeymoon period ends. Yes. Although I yeah. figure if you take over for someone who's been leading the organization for almost 50 years, a year doesn't feel like very long. Right. And, and founder. So let me let me tell folks a little bit about who you are. Uh, president of Sojourners and author of, a, of another book, um, Before uh, a More Perfect Union, which was um, Mobilizing Hope. Is that correct? Right. Yes. And... and um, you have been reading about you a little bit. You seem to have been in the kind of um, faith slash NGO slash um, justice, peace, hope, religion, spirituality work for a long time. When when you were when you were uh, at the School of Foreign Service, what were you studying? Because I know you were at Harvard for a while before you got into all this. What were you? What was your actual field of study? Yeah, so I studied public policy at the Kennedy School of Government and had actually a concentration in international development. A lot of my passion and work has been both about kind of fighting for human rights and fighting poverty around the world and a lot of work to try to advance racial justice and economic justice here in, the, in this country. Yeah. Um, but then later I experienced a kind of call to ministry. I wrestled with that for a while because I didn't feel called to be a pastor of a church, but I did feel called to try to engage and enlist the church more and a greater commitment to justice. And so mm-hmm. in about 2006, I started seminary at the Proctor School of Theology. And this is actually when I was working at Sojourners the first time I was on staff as a senior political director. 
and then got my master's in divinity degree and got ordained in 2009. When you first found out about sojourners, what was the context? In other words, there must have been a time in your life when you never heard of these guys, and now you're president of this outfit. How, how, what was your first introduction, and um, how, how did that all unroll? And when was it, and where was it? Yeah, so it felt kind of providential. I kind of lament that I didn't discover sojourners until graduate school. Um, it was really because of a course that Jim Wallace, who's the founder of Sojourners, was teaching as adjunct professor at the Kennedy School on the intersection of faith and politics. And literally, you only get one elective class your first year at the Kennedy School. So you got to choose it really wisely. And there's you know, so many different courses that were piquing my interest. But a friend of mine kind of convinced me that I absolutely had to take this class with this guy, Jim Wallace. And so I took a step of faith and signed up and the class was incredible. It connected the dots around so many things I was passionate about, struck up a kind of relationship that turned into a friendship with Jim. And then he asked me to at, be a, a TA for his course my second year. And then I graduated, started a nonprofit called Global Justice, and he asked me to join the Board of Sojourners. So kind of started this very, you know, long but formative journey with me kind of sojourning with the organization mm -hmm. before I became president. And w when would you have joined the board? So I first joined the board back in like 2001. Okay. And, you know, it was on and off the board a couple of different times. Um, and then actually ultimately became chair of the board. I became Jim's boss for a couple of years, which was, yeah. which was fun. Um, and then really the 2016 election was kind of a, a real turning point in my own discernment. And mm -hmm. I tell the story in the book, but there is, you know, we all can kind of remember back to the morning after the election and my then five-year-old son, Joshua came into our room at 3 AM and we hadn't been able to sleep that night and was like, mommy and daddy, I need to know who won the election. And we really tried to shield him from the election, yeah. which is kind of possible in DC. But we were like, well, we think Mr. Trump won. And his exact response was, I don't understand how someone who has done and said such mean things could win. Yeah, And I was just yeah. speechless. I, I literally felt such turmoil and such anguish, mm. not because our country had elected a Republican or someone that's more conservative than me, but literally elected someone who had managed to exploit and stoke so many of the worst impulses and yeah. demons in our country of racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Yeah, And that was kind of a breaking point. I realized that I couldn't stay in my position at the World Bank. I was doing very meaningful work leading a whole faith initiative at the World Bank Group. Mm -hmm. But I felt like I needed to get back into the struggle for our democracy and for the kind of soul of our country. And so I rejoined Sojourners as the executive director. Jim and I then went through some really important, great years of transition together as kind of, you know, he, he is president, me as executive director. And then I formally became president in November. Because let's see, Jim. Jim's how old now? He is early seventies. I should know his exact age, but yeah, because <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be seventy next year. And I think I first met him. Oh, maybe I was fifteen, and he came out to visit my dad, Francis Schaefer, in Switzerland at Labrie, the ministry my parents started. I've known right. Jim since I was fifteen, basically on and off. But the funny thing is, in in the time uh, since after I met. Um, Jim, it was at Labrie at that time, if someone had come to Labrie, they would have said it's sort of a fundamentalist evangelical hippie commune. So mm -hmm. Jim showed up at that phase. And then with, sadly, a lot of pushing from me, 
um, sort of out of greed and ambition and career wise, having become my dad's nepotistic sidekick in the seventies and gotten him into the religious right, really via taking a quote stand on the human life issues with the film series that I wrote and directed how, whatever happened to the human race that Dr. Sierra Coop featured in, in the years that followed that, as we kind of moved to the right and Jim kept doing what he was doing in terms of sojourners, Ron Sider, other people like that, uh, who were friends of ours, there was this incredible rift. So for a while, we would have regarded Jim Wallace, sojourners, um, folks like that, kind of as the enemy of what we were doing. Although, uh, you know, that was illogical because Jim was never all about that anyway. But many years later, obviously, after I took my own journey out of out of that evangelical right wing um, world and became something completely different, you know, on a human and spiritual level and career wise as well, no longer in the big time God business and very far from it as a novelist and writer. Uh, you know, then then Jim sort of Jim and I sort of met as co-belligerents on a lot of plat issues and places. And after that, I followed him with great affection and and the work of Sojourner. So, yeah, the first thing I want to say now we've got a little relaxing, uh, you know, chit chat out of the way is is I'm so glad Jim's found someone that he loves as much as he loves you to take over the work because Jim is so fond of you. When I talked to him this summer down at Wild Goose about how everything was going. Uh, you know, you live a trail of very goodwill behind you, which is, which is good. Um, and because of that, um, you know, you obviously have a very warm personal relationship with these guys because it's the same with the staff. They, they speak of you so warmly, which is great. So now I want to turn the page before we get into the book itself, which I've got, I have marked several passages to read here that I like, I'll show them to you. That's dog-eared and so on. I really did read it. Um, I want to talk about your personal life a little bit and forget the, 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 you know, the, the work and forget the education and everything. You have a five-year-old who, who else is in your family in, in, you know, the people that count most to you, who are they these days? Thanks for that question. Yeah. So my, I have to start with my wife, Sheree, she grew up in Jamaica and then in Toronto, Canada, actually literally just became a U.S. citizen about two months ago. So yeah. celebrated that. And she's a lawyer kind of by training, but now kind of works at Consumer Reports. And my five-year-old son that I mentioned, so Josh, let me, was let me just 10. go back to Sharia a minute. Yeah. Where did you all meet and how long ago was that? So funny enough, we, we met in church uh, at Union Baptist Church when I was just, I just finished my graduate degree at, at Harvard and she was just finishing her law degree at Boston College and I had just gotten uh not ordained yet but I had become licensed in ministry and so kind of brand new to ministry we met in the basement of the church in kind of a young adult bible study and we were paired up together and just immediately kind of hit it off and then I had to go up uh I wasn't preaching that day but I was sitting with the ministers like which often happens in black churches and all the ministers sit around the pulpit. And yeah, so I'm looking at the congregation and she's really sitting there in the middle and I could not stop staring at her. And her friend was like, is that minister staring at you? <laughs> this yeah, is not the yeah. best protocol of behavior, but nonetheless, um, it was a we, good kind of staring. Exactly. It was a good kind of, uh, thank you. I'll, I'll claim that. So yeah, we started dating after that and, uh, three years later got married. So that's great. 
Yeah, she's definitely my anchor. And then my five-year-old son is now 10. So he's five yeah. in 2016. Joshua and my other son is eight, Nathaniel. And right. they're both, you know, wonderful, very athletic. I'm their soccer coach, which I hugely enjoy. That's good. And uh, yeah, we live just outside of DC in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm also active in ministry at Alpha Street Baptist Church, which is yeah. not anywhere close to Silver Spring. It's in and is that Alexandria. where you go? Yeah. You and you and your family go to that church? We do, we do. I mean, sadly, because of COVID, it's been closed down, and sure. we're hoping it can reopen in November. But yeah, that is our home church, and uh, really, you know, love the pastor Howard John Wesley and. It's just an amazing church. So when you when you um, met your wife, were did you and she have similar backgrounds in the sense that first I'm going to ask you about your background. Do you come from some sort of religious background that shadows where you are now, either a journey to or from? And did she as well? Because you're meeting in a church. But I just wonder what sort of homes you all grew up in. T- talk about your wife first. What sort of a home? Sure. Did you grow up in? So my wife grew up Christian. Her my she's got a very gigantic family and you know her my my father-in-law has eight siblings and they were a very devout seven-day Adventist family oh okay. mother-in-law grew up catholic and then kind of left the catholic church and started going to different mainline churches yeah and so you know i think my wife has certainly been influenced by all that, but I think certainly by the time I met her, she was very much a kind of Protestant Christian and had been going to a couple of different black churches and then ended up at Union Baptist Church where we met. Did she, did she sort of have a moment when she moved out of the Seventh Adventist tradition or was it kind of an evolutionary step or did she one day just say, this is not where I want to be for whatever reason and, and sort of say goodbye? Was there a family yeah. split because of that was- or was it just a transition? Yeah, so she was never really that involved in the Venice Church, um, mainly because my mother-in-law is more religious than my father-in-law. So it was yeah. more of a departure from the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And I think there was kind of a moment where she decided to, they both kind of decided to leave. Um, yeah. And then on my side, you know, my parents, we, we, you know, we were really young. We went to a Presbyterian church and then we did, we ended up and discovering. What kind of a Presbyterian church was that? Sort of more, Presbyterian more, USA, more uh, reformed or or less more evangelical. More, how would you have looked at that? It was, it was a reformed church, um, and I, you know, I only have kind of vague memories because I was very young. Yeah, when we were active in that church. We're, we're the church that like really I think helped uh, form us in our spiritual religious walk was the first congregational church of Bellingham, Washington. Mm-hmm. So we joined a very vibrant congregational church had an amazing, very thoughtful, very smart minister, you know, pastor. And my dad got really involved in the choir. My mom really got involved in the youth group. I was very involved in the youth group, not just at the church, but also kind of, you know, nationally. And that was where I really kind of experienced fellowship in a much deeper way and experienced the love of Christ in a Mm -hmm. very profound way. And so, you know, what part of my story is that, you know, my mother's black and my father's white and they got married in 68, you know, same year Dr. King was assassinated only a yeah. year after interracial marriage was legalized around the country through loving yeah. versus the state of Virginia. And they instilled in me this really deep and abiding belief that one, my diversity in a larger sense, our nation's diversity is a strength, not a weakness. Hmm. And then they instilled in me the sense that my generation, generation X inherited 
the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle. Yeah. So I mentioned that just because I became very infatuated with the civil rights movement from an early age. And so by the time I got to high school, I became just really convinced that I, I wanted and needed to go to school and kind of trace some of the history of the civil rights movement. And so mm-hmm. I ended up applying to Emory University, was able to get a scholarship. And so I went to Emory in Atlanta. And literally the first Sunday I was there, I made a pilgrimage to Ebenezer Baptist Church, the sure. spiritual home of Dr. King, heard just an amazing sermon that weaved together a commitment to, you know, a deep personal relationship with Christ with a deep commitment to justice mm-hmm. in the world. And I joined that same Sunday. And then a few months later, I ended up volunteering at the Dr. King Center for Nonviolent Social Change in Atlanta. And so, you know, that really cemented this kind of connection to yeah. the civil rights movement. And, you know, that's part of what inspired me to write this book. Yeah. And I, I'm going to get to the book in a second here. Um, and I want to talk about it and what, what it's about. I just want to ask you an interesting question. This is just totally changing gears here. Let me just remind people you're listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And my guest today is Adam Russell Taylor, who is the president of Sojourners. He's got a new book out, which we're going to talk about a little bit here, uh, A More Perfect Union, which I've read and marked some passages I want to read to him. I don't know why I read stuff to to an author, but he knows what's in it, but I'm going to ask him about it. Uh, Before I do that, though, I have an interesting question for you that I think um, changes the subject completely. How how do you, as president of Sojourners, coming from the background you come from, and obviously someone who has a a very vibrant faith now and has for a long time, um, deal with people like me who come out of an evangelical background, almost like refugees now? You know, I describe myself as an atheist who believes in God. And we can unpack that a little bit sometime, but this is, you know, an interview where I'm interviewing you, but you sort of get an idea maybe from that terminology that um, I look back on my journey of faith as one that's uncomfortable, a learning experience, a lot of rejection of past things that I feel were real mistakes. And now a lot of sorrow looking at the storming of the Capitol by people who were inspired by a lot of the evangelical work that not just my family did, but many of the people that we worked with back in the day, you know, Reverend Falwell, Pat Robertson, uh, all these guys, um, many of whom turned out to be real con artists and flakes, uh, which was not true of my family. Uh, we were mistaken in a lot of ways, but not thieves. And, and we were not a criminal organization as most big evangelical mega anything seem to be these days or often have been. Um, But it seems to me, as I look at the kind of people who follow sojourners um, and are affected by your day-to-day work and might be the readers of this book, A More Perfect Union, cynicism is the wrong word, but burnt out might come closer to it. And so your, your message is you know, you involve a lot of Black Americans um, in on the sort of professional level, and you have quotes of people endorsing your book, who are some of whom are friends of mine who are in that venue. But I think if you peel back a layer a little below that, you're dealing with a lot of white people, some of whom very much are in my age group, who came out of that environment, sort of burnt out, went away, and you're their sojourners is their kind of last link uh, with anything that might be called even halfway evangelical, if you still even want to use the term. So I want to ask you as a leader of that organization, but also a spiritual question, because you're a pastor, you know, what do you say to people who come from those backgrounds that make them feel like they're refugees and they're spending the rest of their lives getting the ringing out of their ears? They're done with the whole thing. 
how do you call any of that group to action and to yeah. involvement? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, so first, I would want to say and kind of ask for forgiveness on behalf of the church for the ways in which the church harmed so many of you mm. and rejected so many of you. Mm. I think Sojourners tries to be a kind of you know, sanctuary, lifeline in some ways, vehicle for many people that have felt mm. burned by the church for a whole series of reasons. And, you know, we've always been ecumenical in our overall kind of charism and theology. Mm. We also, you know, in part because of Jim's leadership and identification as an evangelical and coming out of that tradition, really tried to claim the evangelical label, but try to redeem it or try to transform it. Yeah. And, you know, I, sadly, I think it's become so hijacked and so politicized mm. that it's hard for me to see in the short term, at least, that it really could be rehabilitated. Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't mean we don't want to start, start, stop trying, but I think Sojourners as a spiritual home or religious home really is going to be Christ-centric. Mm. And we're trying to draw people back into a relationship with Christ and that relationship then enlists us in so many justice causes in the world. And so, you know, I would really kind of center my own experience, particularly after college, being rooted in the Black church tradition. And the Black church tradition, by and large, is very evangelical, if you kind of look yeah. at many of the theological tenets of evangelicalism. But it doesn't carry with it a lot of the, you know, more, you know, unfortunately, racist trappings of white evangelicalism. Mm. And, and so I'm really hopeful that not only can Sojourners reach and resonate with folks like you, but also with a younger generation mm. that identifies much more as spiritual, but not religious. Yes. And, and what's the good news that I see is that most of those young people I meet still have a high regard for Jesus. Mm. They want to follow the Beatitudes of Jesus and many of the teachings of Jesus but they have been, they've seen the hypocrisy and they've seen the, you know, oftentimes hatred of the church mm -hmm. and have walked away from, from that. So if, if sojourners can kind of be that bridge, I think that's a really important role to play. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm anxious to have a big tent because ultimately, you know, my desire is to see people have a, a strong personal redemptive relationship with, with Christ and I'm, I'm deeply committed to the transformational work of justice in our nation and the world. And the beloved community vision really is not a, just a Christian vision. The strength of it is that it is a deeply civic vision and a multi-religious vision, which we can talk about more. Yeah, that's, that's a good answer. And I like, and of course, it is a generational shift as people that come from my generation have sort of seen slide 
where evangelicals used to be identified with people like Billy Graham and Wheaton College, and then it went through the mega church and the televangelist phase, then the slide into the hard right. And, you know, uh, as has been pointed out, even the white evangelical tradition included a lot of good things at one point in terms of the the abolitionists and the people working on integration. And then there's, you know, guys like Jim Wallace himself. One question I've always had for for Jim and, and folks at Sojourners that I kind of pose to you, because it sounds to me like you're taking a slightly new direction, is I, I have felt for perhaps longer than some of my friends like Jim, that the ter- the evangelical world and the terminology that describes it, the born again experience, the word evangelical itself, now carries so much fraught baggage with it that at a certain point, post-Trump and into vaccine rejection territory and QAnon and all the rest, I, I just don't understand how um, sojourners or you are going to be able to stay in the good graces of the evangelical mainstream when that mainstream has now moved incredibly far right. I'll give you one example just locally, Gordon College uh, that is down the street from me here in north, north of Boston. Uh, you know, had a change of, of, of administration at one point in, in what I'll call the Trump era or the reaction to the Obama era, however you want to put it. Um, and all of a sudden, a lot of professors who were more tolerant in their views of gay rights and so forth were gone. Uh, they wrote to President Obama and asked him to, to make an exception for them so they could still fire people who came out as gay. Um, they took on the state of Massachusetts, eventually wanted to go to the Supreme Court with this. And, and all of a sudden, a college that might have had some Jim Wallace's in it, if I could put it that way, no longer had room for that point of view. And this is a main uh, bastion of evangelicalism. And, and so, you know, when you look at the when you look at what's happening, I just wonder how Sojourners, whether Sojourners describes itself as evangelical anymore, or whether you have to spend so much time defining what you mean that um, the terminology itself almost becomes worthless at this point. Is that a problem to you or doesn't it matter? Is this just semantics of an old guy who lived through the era, so I care about it? No, I think it does still matter. I mean, I I would say that Sojourners is more ecumenical than evangelical. I haven't given up on reaching and trying to convert and persuade many evangelical Christians about, you know, really embracing a more holistic Christ yeah. and a greater commitment to justice. That being said, I mean, there has been a retrenchment in many parts, not all, but many parts of the evangelical church yeah. that are quite worrisome. And they're aligning themselves with essentially a white Christian nationalism and yeah. with the cultural personality of Trump that I think are really antithetical to the teachings and the life of, of Jesus. Yeah. There are some hopeful signs, though. I mean, I think the, you know, the article that created a lot of controversy that Christianity Today put out just before the election. Sure. They got on a lot of hot water was, was a hopeful sign. I think, you know, while I wish it had more impact and influence on the evangelical church, the national association of evangelicals, their current leadership is much more in lockstep with sojourners, certainly than, than he has been in the past. They have a document called for the health of the nation, which is a really good document in so many different ways. And, you know, the, the, the challenge though, is the majority of evangelicals in the pews haven't necessarily read it or fully internalized it. So I do think there's kind of a a disconnect that we need to close between the kind of political evangelical movement and and really name them as more of a political movement than anything else. Yeah, I don't think it's deeply theological. It's much more political. And then there's just a lot of like evangelicals who may lean conservative, but are 
you know, much more apolitical, to be honest, mm. out there that, you know, are supporters of organizations they used to work for, like World Vision, or that are connected to more of the reform movement, who yeah. I believe yeah. we have a chance to get them activated and we need their voices to start speaking out against so many of the alarming things we see threatening our democracy right now. Mm. Now, I, I, I want to dive into the book here a minute, A, per, a More Perfect Union, uh, um, Adam Russell Taylor, here's the book, everybody. And um, I've got a couple of places that I just picked out in, in, in the book and marked. Um, I'm looking at something you, you, you put here, you're quoting somebody um, by the name of Hughes, Richard T. Hughes, uh, who wrote Myths, uh, America, let's see, Myths, America, Lives. Is that Myths, America, Lives or Lives? Uh, America, Lives, Life. Yeah. But anyway, you, you cite a couple things. And, and the reason I want to uh, put them here in these bulleted points is because I was looking for something that kind of um, addresses what I think you're answering in this book, but also laying out. That, and, and here they are. Uh, the myth of a chosen nation, the notion that God Almighty chose the United States for a special mission in the world, the myth of nature's nation, the conviction that American ideals and institutions are rooted in the natural order, that is, in God's own intentions first revealed at the dawn of civilization, the myth of the millennial nation, the notion that the United States building on that natural order will usher in the final golden age for all humankind, the myth of a Christian nation, the claim that America is a Christian nation consistently guided by Christian values, the myth of the innocent nation, the convention, the conviction that while other nations may have blood on their hands, the nobility of the American cause always redeems the nation and renders it innocent. And I, I thought that was great that you included those bulleted points because the only comment I would make is that those things are used by evangelicals in two ways. One, as statements of fact, and the other is a kind of an apologetic saying, see, this proves Christianity is true. Look at all these great benefits we have in the West. My father used to include that in his apologetic, whether it was Northern European Reformation art that he loved or American democracy. Somehow these were the fruits of the gospel and made America unique in a very darkened world where we you know, we were more this shining light with this Christian background. So I'm glad you took that on, but it seems to me that those bulleted points are the kind of heartbeat of where the far right of the evangelical movement has gone in the next step, because you could have included another one. And I know this wasn't your writing, but you were summarizing somebody else's, but including it. And that was that Trump was somehow revealed by God as the leader who would restore all these things that are under attack from people like you and me, or quote unquote liberals or whomever. Um, how do you feel about that? Don't you think that those encapsulate the sort of movement toward Trump? But would you add that other point that now the kind of Christian nationalism has, a, has adopted this thing? He really won the election. He was chosen by God, so he couldn't have lost. I mean, it's now gone out. <laughs> you know, those are still those are points you could argue with rationally. Now you could add a bullet point that has that there's no answer for because it's not from this planet, if I could put it that way. How right. do you feel yeah. about that? No, you're making a really good point. And, and part of the reason why I included that material, well, just let me backtrack a little bit. So about five years ago, I started teaching as an adjunct professor, very much things kind of coming full circle from how I mentioned I met Jim. So yeah. I got an invitation by Pepperdine University. I don't get to go to Malibu, California, right. but I teach here in DC, they have a, a campus here. So I teach a class on religion and comparative politics. And I actually discovered Richard Hughes' book, yeah. the first time because it was an assigned reading for the course and yeah. really loved his argument. 
And so in this class, you know, I emphasize these myths and I'm also often amazed at just how much they're new to our students, even though kind of subconsciously they, they know about them, but they haven't necessarily been taught a lot of this history. Yeah. So then I wrote in this book because I think you can't understand the rise of Trumpism and you can't understand why, you know, 82% of white evangelicals voted for him and the majority of white mainline Christians and white Catholics sure. voted for him the first time. Yes. Unless you understand how these myths are woven into the psyche, the conscience, the, the, the kind of narrative of our country. Yeah. And yeah. it's important to name them as myths. I mean, you could say, using even stronger language, that they're, they're lies, although I think yeah. there's some yeah. truth embedded in them. Yeah. But particularly the myth that we're a chosen nation, that we're an innocent nation. Well, in the and new Israel, if you want to come right down to it, you know. Right. Those have propped up a sense of American exceptionalism and triumphalism. Yeah. And they give license to the kind of, I think, distorted theology that then would want to anoint Trump as the next Cyrus and yes. see him as this kind of imperfect instrument of God's will. Well, and All did so. And you, you even have people who, who, who postured at, at, who posed at, or were at one point. I mean, there's this really crazy character, Metaxas, who is a sort of an evangelical intellectual who writes a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which, by the way, I take great issue with. I read it and thought did not think it was a very good biography for a lot of reasons, but that's a side issue, but who now go even further and and condemn people who don't appreciate Trump as this Lord's anointed new Cyrus or whatever, or King David, um, you know, as traitors to the United States. So that there's there's people within the evangelical movement who seem to have had a brain at one point who have gone off at a tangent which is almost unthinkable. So we're not just talking about the, you know, an unwashed mob of people here, if you want to be caricature them. There's some evangelical leadership here that really surprises me that's gone in that direction. I found it very surprising. I do too. And I find it very alarming. And yeah. it makes me very worried because again, unless we can get more of those moderate voices to speak out and to name that as really heretical, yeah. not Christian, I think more people are going to be swayed by some of those arguments. Well, and uh, back in the day when we were campaigning for Ronald Reagan and we knew the Bush family, my parents were staying in the, the Ford White House. I had Mike Ford living in my house for a year, babysitting my, my daughter, Jessica. I got my wife, Jeannie, pregnant when we were 17 and 18. And Mike and Gail Ford were staying with us at the time. And Jeannie and I have been together 52 years since and everything going forward. And I do childcare for my three youngest grandchildren every day. But back in those days, it would have been impossible to think of even a right-wing conservative evangelical figure like my father or Billy Graham saying that a president had been chosen by God and to vote against him would be voting against God's will. Nobody ever went there, e even at the margins. I mean, it's unthinkable to think. Just, there's so much unthinkable, you know, you and me are in effects. Where do you start? But just start there, that you have big-time evangelical leaders like Ralph Reed and Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. before he fell afoul of, of, of his, you know, uh, dalliance and so forth and so on, going to the limit and actually talking about thus saith the Lord stuff. This is the chosen one. And they, they weren't kidding. Yeah, no, it, it, it is alarming and it's dangerous. I think, um, you know, my, my sense of hope in all of this is that we can 
persuade more Christians to start speaking out. I mean, I've had a lot of private conversations with people who are deeply distressed by January 6th and deeply sure. distressed by the things you're talking about, but have remained, you know, far too too quiet. And, and well, so, maybe they're terrified too, because even yeah, well, I mean, there's risk involved, right? Yes, yeah. there, there's there's definitely risk involved. But I speaking think speaking of which, though, let me just ask you a question, to sort of to the point, and that is, what about all those folks who are speaking out, but also or, you know, earning a living from the big old evangelical God machine still. And okay, they may be terrified of the far right or whatever, but it just seems to me that, you know, people who still want to get their books published by the big evangelical publishers and get invited to speak at Wheaton College or Gordon or whatever, can't stand up too vociferously on this stuff because, you know, the, the machine... The machine is into self-preservation more than principle. Now, that's a dark way to look at the evangelical world, but I'm, I think that's the case 99% of the time. D do you share my dark vision, or do you feel that I'm too cynical about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of truth to what you just said. And, you know, it's a moment, I think, of clarity and the need for clarity and courage. I mean, I, I think there are some voices that have been willing to speak out even if it meant severing those contracts and ruining some yeah. of their credibility. Yeah. And, and we need to see more of it. We also need to challenge those institutions, whether it's Wheaton or, you know, the any of these publishing places. out. Yeah. Do you get it, it, it as president of Sojourners these days, post-Trump, knowing that, you know, huge chunks of the evangelical audience, if polls are to be believed, 70% of them believe Trump is the legitimate president and Biden shouldn't have been elected. They're going along with all these voter suppression regulations coming up through all these state houses. Um, at, at what point does Sojourner no longer get any speakers invited to evangelical institutions because you aren't clearly pro, you know, that, pro the right, pro what's happening? I mean, do you see a shift there in terms of your own ability to talk to some of these folks or do you still get invited places? So it's still early. I have been invited in some spaces, particularly because I see myself as a bridge builder. I mean, that's something that I actively try to do, but yeah. not in a way that then compromises my core beliefs. I mean, I think I believe strongly in taking up your cross and counting the cost of that. Yeah. You know, what does it gain to, for to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I will try to be faithful to what I believe, but I'm also willing to engage in dialogue and want to engage in dialogue with people that are, have very different points of view than me. So, I mean, we continue to work with the Southern Baptists in different ways, we're closer to the NAE, although the NAE is much more moderate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would actually, I hope that, you know, some of those institutions you name will invite me in at some point. I haven't, you know, things are a little different in the midst of COVID. So not a lot of invitations. Yes, that's right. We're doing anyway. on Zoom here. Maybe right, exactly. Tech, but, tech, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, if any of them are listening to your podcast, I would welcome those invitations because I think we desperately need to create more spaces for dialogue. And, yeah. you know, if we can't model that, in you know, our own kind of Christian way, how we expect our politics to be any better, right? Yeah, yeah no, no, I totally, totally agree. The other day I was interviewing um, uh, Beth Allison Barr, who's written this book called The ba Making of Biblical Womanhood, and she's an evangelical, but her, her husband, who was a pastor, got fired from his evangelical church because his wife, who's an academic who teaches at Baylor, I believe, was writing all this stuff on a, a sort of biblical roots for feminism. And that alone was enough to get him canned from his church. So I think, you know, I think the times are fraught and people of goodwill like you who still are leaving all the channels open 
um, my senses may be disappointed before this is all done. And then hopefully we come out the other side. You know, I'm not a pessimist in the long term. Um, so let me get to another passage in your book and just take a look at something else I wanted to talk about that I think was really excellent. And I, I like this for a reason that's a little bit self-serving uh, because it ties in with a lot of work I've been doing recently. And that is you write on, let's say page 175, a comprehensive approach to poverty must include the following and more bulleted points here. It must address the breakdown of families by ameliorating the economic pressures that accelerate this breakdown. Well, as we speak here today um, in our government, Congress, the both the House and the Senate, is a huge discussion on whether they're even going to have you know, paternity leave included in these bills and paid maternity leave. I mean, it's so funny because there's so much that leapt off the page in reading, rereading sections of your book that I had marked the first time I went through it to look at with you today that sound like the list of things that Joe Biden's trying to get done this afternoon. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just crazy. It's like, you know, you write it down here and it comes out there. We're living a historical moment that's insane. And it goes on here. Um, it requires addressing of the changing nature of work due to automation and technology. Well, Every headline on, in every newspaper in America today is the great resignation. People just saying, the hell with this, I'm done. Um, blue collar folks saying, I'm not doing $12, hour, $12 an hour anymore to work in your stinking box store or load grocery shelves and catch COVID while you all make money. And then on the other end, a lot of people like my son, John, who renegotiated his contract on a managerial level with a tech company saying, I'm coming in one day a week. And if you don't like it, I'll find another job. I'm working from home. I'm used to being home with my kids now. So we see a, a huge transition that is very much, you know, right in the guts of your book. Like you're talking about it on a theoretical level. People are doing it, not as mass protests, but just, you know, we're mad as hell and we're out of here. And, and um, it requires transforming our education system so that the quality of a child's education isn't tied to their zip code. Um, it requires increasing access to jobs, partly by pursuing federal jobs program that build infrastructure, <laughs> increase investment in low-income communities and strengthen job training programs. All I'm trying to point out to folks who are thinking of reading this book is that far from just being a theoretical book by somebody who has a lot of training and, and, and has done interesting things, you, you actually happen to have written a book. I don't know when you were writing this, but it drops into the moment we're living in as a kind of ripped from the headline stuff. I don't know whether you realized you were doing that. I just want to ask you, did, did you sort of, I mean, when did you close this book out in the process of COVID coming down the path? Because it yeah. seems to have some prophetic qualities to it. Well, thank you. That, that, that's definitely a compliment. And that certainly was my hope. So I wrote a big chunk of the book about three years ago and then did a lot of revising. Particularly, I feel yeah. like I could not put out the book after we'd been through the racial awakening summer two summers ago. Yeah. And we, you know, COVID hit and yeah. kind of a whole new way in which our reality was upended. And so I was able to kind of update many different parts of it. And it, you know, originally was going to come out in January of this year and they got postponed until September, which in some ways was, 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 you know, providential because I think it's a stronger book as a result. Sure. I would just emphasize that, you know, a lot of those policy ideas and prescriptions comes out of, you know, 20 plus years of advocating for pretty much all of those provisions. Yeah, sure. Um, Sojourner's been working on those issues for a long time. Yeah. One in particular that we finally got a huge victory around 
in the rescue package was the child tax credit. I mean, we've been- Yes, which I, by the way, let me just stop that. that because I think that's the best thing that ever happened. I mean, I just, to the degree that you guys worked on it and had a, a lot to do with it, I, you know, thank you for, for from, you know, a grateful American because this was great and uh, well done, well done, well done. More of the same, please. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And, and now, you know, sadly, because the, Build Back Better package has been pared down as a result yes. of trying to compromise with Senator Manchin and Cinema to $1.75 trillion. Right now in the proposal, there's only a one-year extension to the child tax credit, which is yeah. certainly better than nothing. But yeah. that needs yeah. to be that needs to become a permanent fixture of our social safety net because it's one of the most effective ways to lift yeah. children out of the quicksand of poverty. Yeah. And, and what, what frustrates me the most in the kind of debate about this is that this is the most pro-family, pro-children yes. agenda we have seen since the Great Society. Yeah. And yet, you know, there is a wall of opposition from Republicans. The religious right has been pretty much silent, if not critical. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what is more pro-family than enabling a mother or a husband to be able to get paid family leave yeah. so that they can have the support they need to care for their kids? What's yeah. more pro-family than a child tax credit or ensuring that working families can afford childcare? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I've really tried to frame it that way. And, you know, it hasn't always broken through, but I will continue to speak out yeah. about just yeah. how pro-family, which means, you know, this is pro-human dignity, pro-imago day, And there's lots of different ways to root this in our religious sensibilities and convictions. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm proud that Sojourners has been a part of a much broader coalition called the Circle of Protection that has really fought hard to keep those provisions in the bill and try to keep the bill as ambitious as possible. And so, you know, we're kind of, you know, maybe we're at the five yard line. Yeah. <laughs> we're so close to, to scoring this thing, but I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that within the next month, we'll see it passed. Yeah, and I think the point you bring up is really good. And that is obviously any claim to being pro-family, pro-life, pro-woman, pro-charity, pro-anything when it comes to dignity of individuals just evaporates if, if you can't get behind something like a child tax credit or paid family leave. I mean, we want people to have babies, right? So we tell them not to have an abortion. And then when they try to have a child, we're saying, you know, now go, go to get back to the office next week and you're on your own. Um, the, the level of hypocrisy is just amazing. But I think that your book, you know, in touching on these points is almost like a kind of a, a reference point for folks. Um, a little further on, you talk about in making a case for his new economics, Hanor suggests that, but again, these bullet points jump out of your book, economic growth is created primarily by people and not simply by capital. Reciprocity promotes the public good, not simply self-interest, and cooperation, not purely competition, produces our prosperity. And, you know, I, I've done a lot of reading in the last five and a half years on a project that I've been working on, which we're not here to promote today with a new book of mine that's coming out. But what was interesting to me is I have sciencey friends who teach at university level who've been reading this manuscript back and forth, and they've been sending me wonderful things to read on, on evolution and psychology and so on and so forth. But a term which has come into the scientific field in the last 20 years and now is a big deal is the survival of the friendliest, replacing the survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And this is not me making this up because it sounds nice or Jesus said it or something. This is like hard science now. And it has to do with 
actual evolutionary survival. Why are any of us here? And we're here because we have caregivers in our past. Um, if everybody was a rapist and a pillager and a killer and a exploiter, none of us would be here. So it's also kind of an optimistic note about the direction of human human life that any of us have survived is, a, is, a, is sort of an optimistic point on our future. But what I like so much about that passage in your book is it's sort of a list of things that could be put under the heading of the survival of the friendliest. So I just wondered if you've, if you've run into that term because it's out there. No, I actually haven't, but I'm glad you shared it because I really... I really like it. And it's, it's a good way of framing it. I mean, I think another important way of kind of framing the kind of economy we need is a restorative economy. This yes. kind of gets into the environmental challenges we're facing. Yeah. And we need to break out of this zero sum limited good mentality, mm-hmm. which is just crippling our politics, probably because in the United States context it has become ra- so racialized, you yes. know, any gains or advance of a different or you know, non-white group must come at my own expense. Mm. And that is just not the way the economy needs to work, nor you know has to work, and certainly is not the economy that is in line with, I believe, God's vision of shalom and of wholeness and of liberation. So yeah, I, I would love to learn more about that. And yeah, I, it's uh, interesting because two of the scientists who've done the most work on this are Cornell, and they're, they're studying uh, dog evolution and psychology, and they find that you know dogs and humans co-evolved together uh, starting probably a little more than 50,000 years ago. They used to think it was like 35,000 years. Now they're saying it's earlier to the point where, by the way, we share some cancers that no other mammals share with dogs. I mean, it's crazy. There's a symbiotic relationship that's insane. And one of the things is, is you know, you have this predator who is skulking around your cave, you know, and at some point somebody threw it a bone and it came into the firelight. And then this relationship starts developing the most hunted predator an enemy of all humans suddenly becomes this amazing creature that protects you, sleeps in your bed if it's like Zip, my little dog that I can't get to sleep with unless he's on my bed these days. Um, and they look at this and they're saying, the fact is that actually humans evolve the same way. And the reason that dogs and humans bonded in such a close way is that both, they had this sort of um, relationship based on the fact of tolerating each other. And then of course, the whole hunter-gatherer thing that no hunter-gatherer tribes survives without sharing. And then when it comes to gender roles, you know, we have this idea that men go to work and women are supposed to be home, blah, blah, blah. But of course, this is a modern phenomena because when you go back to hunter-gathering and or the family farm in, in, in history, um, you have men and women's roles interchangeable, elderly people helping with the toddlers, um, and it is a survival of the friendliest paradigm, and this is why we're here. So there's a lot of study on it, and, 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 and I've had a great deal of pleasure digging into it. So let me ask you, a swing back before I get to another quote in the book on something personal. Where, what did you do during the lockdowns? Where were you? Where were your kids? So, you know, we were certainly fortunate in lots of ways. We were at our home in Silver Spring, Maryland. I had a really frenetic travel schedule plan that just got yeah. completely halted. Actually, you know, one of the things I've learned in this pandemic is that I never want to go back to that kind of travel schedule that I had before. And I, I think I'm going to be a lot more discerning about what I say yeah. yes to. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the experience at first was virtual school, which I think any parent can tell you <laughs> made you want to pull your hair out. Um, I'm certainly glad it was better than no school at all. But, you know, with at that time, you know, my my younger son was like six and was, you know, his attention span is is not extremely long, particularly then. Yeah. 
but we were able to, to kind of overcome a lot of that. And the one thing that I absolutely think is just such a, was such a blessing is we have a, it's not big, but we have a kind of tiny little backyard mm. that is like a perfect rectangle. So it's great for playing soccer. You know, I would go out there and do PE with my kids every day and just like yeah. having that fresh air. You know, obviously we can go on walks and we did hikes and other things, but just being right, right in that space, being able to yeah. do things with my kids was just really a blessing. Um, but yeah, we really rediscovered the outdoors and got back into hiking, discovered a lot more trails around the mm. DC area. I think the hardest thing for me, I'm like a real mixture between an extrovert and an introvert. And that extrovert side of me is just really suffering, particularly because I had really hoped and planned to reopen our office, which is really close to Capitol Hill after Labor Day. And then the Delta variant hit and it just didn't feel like the, the benefits outweigh the risks and costs. And so mm -hmm. we're now looking at, you know, the new year, beginning of the new year, when we're going to start reopening. But well, having been forced to spend a little more time with your kids, you know, you kind of discovered a little bit. My, the three grandchildren that I've been doing childcare for for the last 12 years since Lucy was born, well, 13 years now with her, I have five grandchildren, but three live literally across the street. So we all just sheltered together. And it was kind of like a reparenting experience for me because back when my, ki my kids were the age your kids are now, and I was closer to your age, although I was a much younger father because of my insane teen pregnancy adventure with Jeannie. But that said, um, you know, I was on the road six months of the year doing stuff. And I look back with nothing but sort of a hazy regret, thinking, what was all that about? I don't even remember what those big, fancy, important meetings were. But every day I'm with my granddaughter, Nora, I pick her up at school, I bring her back, I cook for her, I do stuff. I mean, these are irreplaceable sort of moments. So as I look back, um, it's not with bitter regret as in I ruined my life, but it's, man, where was my head at? Or who was giving me any actual good life advice instead of all this striving and doing and right. so yeah, on. And, you know, uh, and if it's in a good cause, quote unquote, it's even worse because then you can justify any kind of being away. And I get incredible pleasure. I, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are, have been forced to stay home or waking up today saying, you know what? Um, I don't think I want to go back to quote normal. I mean, what do you think about that? I think that's really important. I mean, we, we shouldn't go back to a, a really broken normal. Yeah. We need to create a new, you know, new normal, abnormal, however you want to describe it. And that's true both in terms of like family life and how we prioritize and center our kids and our wives and our, our families, but also just in terms of the degree to which the pandemic just peel, you know, pull back the curtain on so much inequality and injustice that we knew that was there. Yes. But you know, the degree to which it's revealed such huge racial disparities in health, you know, African-Americans have been three or four times more mm -hmm. likely to contract and then get killed of COVID-19. Yeah. Similar disproportionate rates for Latinos and, and even for Asian-Americans. Yeah. So, you know, to well, me, and the way women have been hammered with career and childcare and stuff. I mean, they took it in the neck far harder than, than males did. Right. I mean, That's right. You know, and, and, and everyone that was, you know, almost overnight now deemed essential whereas they were kind of ignored and mistreated in the past. Yes. And now those same people are kind of realizing that, hey, you know, working for kind of a poverty wage in a job that's putting my life at risk really isn't worth it. And, you know, I, th I think that there just has to be a real reevaluation of our priorities and a kind of restructuring of our economy. And, yeah. and certainly, you know, some of the stuff 
as we talked about earlier, through Build Back Better, are really important steps in that direction. But I think we need even a more fundamental kind of reimagination of what our life should look like going forward. Yeah, and I think one of the things is that, you know, I, I tend to look at feminism as an evolutionary step, like opposable thumbs or losing your tail or all of us walking out of Africa upright at one point when we were coming off that continent and spreading out across the globe. Um, you know, now we have this idea that somehow we have this, that it's more traditional for men not to be caregivers. And yet again, some of the studying I've been doing for, for, for my new book, very interesting and informative, a lot of stuff having been in, done in Israel and here in the US at Columbia and other places showing that men develop exactly the same neural pathways and or hormonal reactions as women do. And now with brain scans and, and, and the modern technology, we're able to measure that. So for instance, a, a gay father with an adoptive child has the same uh, rush of hormones, oxytocin, brain scan pieces lighting up as a mother breastfeeding a child. So that they, these, the, the researchers were really surprised because they were doing the men as a sort of a control. Um, they were studying women. They did the men as a control. And then they started finding something intriguing, switched their studies. Wow. Um, males are, did evolve to be caregivers. So this idea that somehow our roles are very clearly defined, male and female, and that somehow feminism is this new thing is the exact opposite. Actually, it's, it's the other way around. And that is, it's never been women care for children and men do something else. It's that, you know, it really does take a village. And only in this weird shareholders and profits and GDP first and everything else, second world where we're defined by career and not by our human relationships, have we gotten into this crazy treadmill where all of a sudden it's a woman's job to take care of children and men are off doing, quote, the big important things. And if women want to join them, they've got to pretend like they don't have families either. Um, you know, my daughter's a CEO of a company in New York, and she's getting so gets so sick of the fact that the, the women she works with somehow has, have to lie. They have to pretend, no, no, we're not doing a school pickup. We're at the office or, you know, almost like if you admit you have a family, then you're dangerous. And I think the new normal has got to include men realizing it's not a question of stepping up to do the right thing. It's a question of don't throw away their candy and eat the wrapper. The good stuff is is the human relationships. I don't know. You, I'm sure you've done some thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this incredibly important opportunity to reimagine, but also reweave how we think about community and relationships. And that's, that's part of the, the heart of the book is, you know, I, I try to cast this moral vision, which is an old one in yeah. the sense that it comes out of the civil rights movement, even predates yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, a theologian named Josiah Royce really coined the term the beloved community, but King really popularized it and yeah. put it in the popular imagination, the moral imagination. And what I argue in this book is that, you know, we are hardwired to yearn for relationship and community. Yes. We're also hardwired to often move in a direction of division to, to you know, that fear and, and hatred are also such powerful motivators. Yeah, I'm and pushing the other, so, the other, the fear of the right. other. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I, I basically make the argument that our nation in particular desperately needs a shared moral vision and story. Mm. It mm. both reckons with how we've gotten to where we are because the past so often shapes and shows up in the, in the present and the future. And that has kind of a shared 
vision for where we want to go as a nation that is rooted in our deepest religious and civic values. Mm. And so the more, the beloved community to me is the most powerful and most inspirational vision that I think could unify us across many of our generational mm. differences, racial differences, religious differences, et cetera. And, you know, my kind of remixed version of it, building on Dr. King is building a society where everyone is seen, everyone is valued and respected where everyone can thrive and realize their full potential. And in kind of in a policy way, it's building a society where neither punishment nor privilege is viciously tied to race, to mm. ethnicity, to gender, to ableness, to sexual orientation, et cetera. And that's a pretty big bar. Yes. I actually think it's a bar that is rooted in the constitution of the United States. And it's rooted in so many of our religious traditions and our kind of humanitarian commitments. And so that is the kind of, vision for the community that I think we want to become that we, we, we so desperately need. And the good news that I try to highlight in this book, particularly in the third part, is that there are glimpses of the beloved community being built all around us. Yes. You know, I tell all kinds of stories in the book about that. And I unpack what the beloved community looks like into six principles, essentially, or commitments yes. that I call the Beatitudes. So a commitment to a Mago Day equality, a commitment to radical welcome, a, committee, a commitment to prioritizing nonviolence, a commitment to environmental stewardship, and a commitment to dignity for all. And then lastly, a commitment to what I call Ubuntu interdependence, which literally yeah. is all about community. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I, I definitely hope this book can be this kind of catalyst for what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, one way to describe a more perfect union would be to say, listen, you know, if, if, if you sort of are going to reject the tyranny of Ayn Rand and the Superman, alone, individualistic, striving, crush others. Yeah. <laughs> this is the antidote. But let me go to one more last thing here in the book I wanted to share with people before we close this out. And it's funny, I, I just got to prove to you, I already had it. You didn't see me using a pencil. So you know that I'm not doing this because of what you just said. I was prepared, okay? And this is right, not <laughs> I don't want you to think that I'm- No convincing needed. Yeah, we didn't we did not collude on this. Uh, toward the end of the book, you say the journey of building the beloved community will be a hard one requiring sacrifice, vigilance and courage, but it will not be defined purely around struggle. The pursuit of the beloved community will also be filled with great joy. And in it, we will find deeper purpose, belonging and meaning. That's why it is worth pursuing, because the fruits of human flourishing, right relationship and thriving communities are unlocked and experienced in the very acts of building the beloved community. And I love that. And it tore, it's toward the end of the book and really sums up the purpose of the book. And I just wanna to say to anybody watching this in conversation with Frank Schaefer and or listening, you really need to run out and get Adam's book because it's a, it's a really important book. Uh, that, that term gets thrown around a lot, but this is, this is really important um, in itself, irrespective of the fact Adam's running an organization that's important has played a great part in our nation's life now for the better part of 50 years. So I would urge you all to take this book seriously, get in touch with Sojourners. And by the way, Adam, we will list all the connection stuff. Anybody wants to get in touch with you or Sojourners or help out or, or do anything, um, we'll get it all and put it all up anywhere this goes. So people will be able to find you. So um, let me remind you that you've been listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. Please subscribe when, to this podcast um, uh, and help us, not financially, we're not asking for donations, but by subscribing, you help us get more people like Adam Russell, 
Taylor bringing good news to us, author of A More Perfect Union, talking about um, community and what really matters and human relationships, replacing this kind of striving, hard-nosed culture we've got with a different way of looking at things. So um, thank you so much for being with us today, Adam. And you let us know or me know if there's anything that you know we can ever do to serve you. And um, God bless you and your family. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Me too. And yes, let, let's stay in touch. We'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. And I live in Boston and you're not too far away. And one day when we're all traveling more easily, uh, we will do something together. But I look forward to seeing you and, and you know, we'll sit down and have a cup of coffee sometime. That was pretty good, though. We had a good talk. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I love that. And I'm overdue for a trip to Boston. So let's, you know, Well, come on up here and you know how to reach me. So um, be my guest. Anytime you're in the area, I'll come pick you up. OK, thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com. <laughs>